This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. It's radiotherapy time. Um, means your prescription with your Triple R subscription. Of course, uh, you might be uh, listening to the show uh, streaming or you might be on the web or you might be listening sometime in the distant future that we're yet to experience on <laughs> podcast. I hope it's been a good week. <laughs> I'm Panel Beater and I'm not alone in the studio with me. I'm joined by the wonderful Capri and Training Wheels. Good morning to you both. Good morning. Good very morning. <laughs> Good very morning. <laughs> hey, um, uh, uh, Training Wheels, since we last saw you, bit of uh, bit of news in the life? A bit's happened, yes. Oh, what's been going on? I've had a baby. Oh, mm. wow. So apologies in advance, listeners, if I'm not my usual perky self. I've just been talking about poo for the last seven weeks, so <laughs> I might not be quite as <laughs> conversational. Right. right. Yeah. Nice. It was... <laughs> Was it a good conversation? The poo? Oh, look, it varies. <laughs> and it was it was the babies we're talking about, was it? Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah, mostly. Mostly yeah. the babies, yeah. In fact, Maddie, if you're listening, can you give your dad a kiss for me? Mm, there we go. Sweet. There we go. <laughs> Everyone's sleeping okay? Not bad. Not, Not bad. bad. Could be worse. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. Morning, Capri. Good morning. Yes, I'm just remembering those days and... I'm glad I'm a long way away from Not them. talking about poo quite so much Oh, anymore? no, I do that a lot in general <laughs> practice. We talk about poo a lot, yes. Okay. Yeah, it's people seem to be quite obsessed by their um, well, digestive function and that's fine. I'm led to believe it's a very good diagnostic, right? Well, yes, there's lots you can learn from poo. Have you watched that Scrubs that Scrubs video, that you know, good one. which is called... Uh, Everything check, comes down to poo? Yeah, check your poo. It's a great video. It's worth watching. But, yeah, no, it's an important part of your day-to-day function. And there's a major... <laughs> And there's a major <laughs> national... Don't we resort to being like 12-year-old kids when you start talking about poo again, you know? Um, but there's a major national health, public health initiative at the moment, right, where with, people are being sent round... With the faecal occult blood test. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And I'd encourage people not to put it in their cupboards and drawers, which often happens, and then, um, you know, they 12 months later it's expired and, and it's a very important um, public health measure So and can save your life. So get them out of the drawers and do them. Do them. Yeah. Have you heard um, anything recently about response rates? Are people... I actually haven't, no. Yeah. But just from my, you know, personal experience, um, I'm having to encourage but people get them and they yeah. say, oh, yeah, I got that about five months ago or three months ago and they're not doing them. So a lot of people are, but... We need more people doing and that. Peop- and, and they're sent based on electoral roll details, is that right? Uh, yes, and it's every it's now every two years from the age of 50. So, okay. um, And there's a bit of a catch-up program so that by, I think by 2020, it'll be every two years for everyone over 50 to everyone the age 50. of 70. Yeah. So if you've moved in recent times and you haven't updated your electoral roll, do that. Do that too. And, and then poo in a cup. <laughs> mm, mm. <laughs> There we go. It's a very good initiative. Um, We'll have some uh, news coming up. But Capri, you've got a guest later on? I do indeed. We've got uh, Professor Jane Hocking here um, from Melbourne Uni and she's going to be talking to us about sexual health and epidemiology. So look forward to that. Look forward to that indeed. And I've got uh, Rod Harris coming in. Rod's uh, from um, the... um, Neurological Alliance, who are dealing with a, uh, well, as they express it, uh, an unintended consequence of an NDIS funding gap. So we'll talk to them a bit later. But um, let's uh, get ourselves organised for a bit of news. Hmm. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case. 
training wheels. I believe you've got a couple of things caught your eye during the week. Yeah, I've got some good news and some bad news. I'll start with the good news. Let's go with good news. Yeah, good news. Okay. So great news, in fact, this week out of the Lancet Public Health Journal with projections published about the likely future of cervical cancer in Australia. And we've been hearing a lot about cervical cancer the last couple of years with the change to the pap smear. It's now five-yearly HPV testing and it sort of seems to always be in the news. But I think it's still worth talking about this because it's pretty exciting. So projections indicate statistically that the cancer, which of course is caused by HPV, will be considered eliminated as a public health concern within 20 years and will be considered a rare cancer in as little as two years. This is based on how many cases Mm. will be happening per 100,000 of the population. So this is all thanks to Australia being a world leader in excellent national screening over the last few decades with the pap smear and now the HPV screening and as well as rolling out HPV vaccines over the last 11 years to young people. I think I might have been among the first cohort of students Mm. to receive that, so that's fun. Mm. Um, In... It's important to remember that cervical cancer is still a major cause of death and disability in low-income countries and barriers such as the the vaccine is still quite expensive and, of course, it's expensive to do big nationwide screening programs like we've been able to do in Australia. So there's still some improvement to be made elsewhere in the world, but it's exciting that we're really on the right track in Australia and cool that we can be a world leader and sort of be a bit of a model for other countries too to eliminate this important disease. So Mm. that's exciting. Indeed. Really exciting. And is it just going to be rich countries that can deal with this, do you think? Look, it's a good question, panel beater. You always have the good ones. <laughs> I think that probably, I wonder what would be more significant, the vaccine or screening in terms of preventing it. I don't know. And I don't know which is yeah. probably the vaccine would be cheaper to roll out, I imagine, mm. but still prohibitive. How mm. old's the vaccine? So it'll still be um, under intellectual property licences and all of that business, That's right. right. So and they are offering it cheaper for low-income countries, but not cheap enough. Mm. Yeah. I think, we're, as we're going to hear shortly with the sexual health issues, um, I think uh, screening is harder than vaccinating, um, getting people to... For all, all the different barriers we'll talk about, I think if you just can roll out, you know, vaccination, line people up, it's going to be a bit more effective... That's yeah. my opinion. I yeah. don't know. I've got no numbers on that. Seems to make sense, doesn't mm. it? Mm. What's the bad news? Yeah, yes. bad news. Not so good. Sorry. So bad news out of Nauru yesterday. Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, have been providing psychological and psychiatric services to people living on, in, uh, on Nauru since late last year. The services were available to everybody on Nauru, including residents and, of course, asylum seekers detained there by Australia. Um, and the work was initiated when it was found that the psychological and psychiatric services were really inadequate on Nauru, and, of course, it's a major issue. Um, and yesterday it was revealed that the Nauruan government has ordered them to stop their services effective immediately. <sighs> so they're gone. Um, They wrote a letter to all their patients apologising for the situation, not that it's their fault, and raising their concerns that, you know, really them leaving is leaving a huge gap behind for really important services for people living there. Um, The Australian government was asked to comment on this and they said that it was a matter for the government of Nauru, but that seems Hmm. silly to me because these people are, of course, their health and wellbeing is the responsibility of the Australian government. So it seems to me like it very much should be a matter for the Australian government. Um, And this, of course, is in the context of some really awful mental health crises occurring on Nauru. There's a lot of concerns for the people there, particularly the children who have now been there for more than five years. Mm. I don't even know where to begin anymore to think about this. Uh, Anger doesn't even begin to describe it. But also, 
you know, listening to these stories, you know, we were talking in the green room a little bit. What's our complicity? Our, you know, if we're, and I'm talking about the the royal we, the whole lot mm, of us. Yes. Um, at what point do we have to shift from blaming the government and the policy to start looking at ourselves and 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 what we're doing about? Because it remains an, a not important enough policy to shift the government. Yeah. Because. I suppose the population don't care enough about it. There's to be some it. public will about it, doesn't there? Well, yeah, there's the, there's the, you know, we, we, we crave bipartisanship on so many things. Um, and, mm. But here's an example of bipartisanship. Yeah, here's <laughs> an example of bipartisanship, which is probably part of the explanation for the stagnation on, on action, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you're probably right. Yeah, yeah as you say, it's, it's hard to know what to say and from, stuff like this, really. And from a health professional's point of view, I mean, that that's complex as well. We've, in one way or another, we've addressed it on the show um, over time. But, you know, if the if the motivation to be in the health sector at all is to help people, mm. then to observe this. And then for those MSF uh, practitioners who are on Nauru being kicked off, I mean, that must be quite complex for them to go yeah, through. Yeah, there's well. a fairly active group, I think, of, there of is. doctors out there trying to mobilise and, and increase awareness. And, um, uh, yeah, so I think there there's certainly that... Um, idea and push, but I don't know. As little it as needs I think to be it was coming a, from a whole lot of different. I think it's very recently, means. only a week or two ago, that the AMA has finally yeah. said, sort of unequivocally, this is wrong. Mm. You know, the AMA officially does not condone this. Yeah. Um, so that's probably extremely overdue, but good that it's finally yes. happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I've got some good news that wraps up some bad news. Mm. <laughs> I suppose that's good. Yeah. I'm, I'm <laughs> nice trying to. Bow. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> So during the week we had a lot of the uh, Nobel Prizes um, being dished out. Um, the one I want to talk about in particular is the Peace Prize, but we should, in passing, um, note the Nobel Prize for Medicine, which was awarded to a couple of scientists who discovered how to fight cancer using the body's own immune system. Hmm. Very cool. Yeah, very cool. But the um, the one that I want to draw attention to in particular is the Peace Prize, and it went to a couple of gynaecologists. And uh, one, in, I'm, I'm not familiar with both of them, uh, but one of them, Dr. McQuege, um, who is a gynaecologist in um, Congo, Democrat, the ironically named Democratic mm, People, yes. Republic of, <clears throat> of Congo. And uh, Dr. McQuege, uh set up a clinic, a hospital, in fact, um, where he performed operations on victims of um, rape um, as a weapon of war. So um, a, a number of listeners will be familiar of, of a distinction to be made about um, rape uh, in in general terms and rape as a as a weapon of war, which you know uh, for reference point we we're well familiar with the phrase um, rape and pillage, mm. you know from from the conquest days. Um, and in the Congo, this is particularly um, serious. He was um, he was performing up to ten life saving surgeries a day. Mm. Um, um, the 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 context is is the I guess civil unrest the militia unrest around um, coltane. Coltane is something that we've all got in our pockets if we've got a smartphone. Okay. And um, yeah yeah so we're talking about complicity mm. with with Nauru but um, coltane is very, extremely rare but and therefore extremely valuable and it and it's not found in many places. One of those places is Congo. So it generates a lot of civil unrest for fight over. Um, ownership and control of these resources. Mm. Um, 
and in that unrest, these horrors occur. And that's where Dr. McQuirge, uh steps in, sets up a hospital and, and, and treats these women and these, mm. these communities. Uh, there's a documentary maybe about a year old, uh, maybe just a little bit longer, uh, a bit older. Um, it's called The Man Who Mends Women is the name of the doco. Um, and uh, it, um, it tells that story um, and uh, Dr. McQuirge, uh in particular. So um, if one of the objectives of the Peace Prize is to draw attention to something like mm, that, because yes. it's certainly not something we see on the front page every day. Mm, no. um, if one of its uh, objectives is to draw attention, uh, then hopefully that is the start of a mm, conversation. Mm. We should acknowledge the, the co-winner of that and her name uh, is Nadia Murad. Yes. And she's an Iraqi Yazidi who herself was tortured and raped by oh. IS, Islamic State. Yeah, her uh, story's just really graphic and uh, really awful. Have you... Yeah, read I, I wasn't familiar. What have you... What, you, what can you share uh, with us? Oh, she just talks about being gang raped and being sold multiple times and how she eventually escaped and and how she's now sort of basically devoting her life to, to this awareness, even though she's a very sort of shy, mm. uh, reserved person. She feels it's her obligation because she managed to escape from it. So Wow. And she feels that's her, her duty now. But, yeah, amazing young lady. Very well-deserved. Mm. Sounds like it. Triple mm. R, not for everyone, for anyone. Welcome back uh, to Radiotherapy. Panel beater, training wheels and Capri are with you. Capri, you've got a guest for us. We do. Um, ja- Professor Jane Hocking is an ep- epidemiologist whose research interests include sexual health and epidemiology and control of sexually transmitted infections. She holds an NHMRC Senior Research Fellowship and is the head of the Sexual Health Unit at Melbourne School of Population and Global Health at Melbourne Uni. And she's especially interested in the sexual health of young adults and genital chlamydia infections. Welcome, Jane. Thanks for coming into the studio. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I thought we'd start with uh, that big word, epidemiology, and letting uh, the listeners and maybe me, <laughs> reminding me what that is and why, what role it plays in health and, um, and yeah, just health in general. Yep. So epidemiology is the study of patterns and distribution and trends of health states or behaviours or disease, or in my case, I look at the distribution of sexually transmitted infections. And we want to understand how they look in a population, but also what are the risk factors or the determinants of them? Uh, Are there particular age groups or gender groups in STIs, the particular groups of certain sexual identity or orientation? Um, And we also want to use that information then to see, well, what can we do to try to control or reduce the transmission within the population groups? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, and and how did you get into this area of medicine? Because you're a GP. No, I'm no. not. A G- oh, I'm, I beg your pardon. I, uh, I did a Bachelor of Applied Science at RMIT donkeys years ago, and used to screen pap smears. Ah. I and see. so I've always sort of remained working in the nether regions, as I tend to. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, about. 20 years ago, I got some work as a research assistant doing some HIV and STI surveillance, and from there I moved into uh, doing my PhD uh-huh. through the okay. public health route. 
Okay. And your area of special interest is chlamydia. Yes. Um, but obviously you look at a whole lot of all the areas of yep. STI, uh, STI, sexually transmitted infections. And the reason I actually was prompted to give you a call is because I recently read something about um, there being sort of a blowout of STI uh, infections in America and it's become this public health issue. And I was wondering whether the trends were similar in Australia. So I wanted someone to give us a bit of perspective on STIs in Australia and uh, yep. what the numbers are like here. So, um, yeah, you've raised a point in that we have seen a, quite a big increase over the last few years. So within Australia, and particularly within young heterosexual populations, chlamydia has tended to be the STI that affects them most. And chlamydia and syphilis and gonorrhea, and gonorrhea and syphilis in particular, have largely affected men who have sex with men. And we haven't seen, we've seen very little of those, gonorrhea and syphilis in particular, in, in young heterosexuals. But in the last couple of years, our gonorrhea rates and our syphilis rates among heterosexuals have increased quite dramatically. And we're seeing that also internationally and so we're not too sure why that's happening but it is it's a concern and it's something we need to to do further research in to help us to try to understand why we're seeing these increasing STIs in young heterosexuals who haven't had chlamydia and gonorrhea, uh, gonorrhea and syphilis for a long long time hmm. and there's the added concern with gonorrhea that it's developing more antibiotic resistance yes. is that right yeah definitely you say you're not sure why. What what are what are the various hypotheses? So there are why? a number of views. It's probably lots of different reasons. So there's one school of thought, or one of the factors that they think might be contributing to it, is uh, that men who have sex with men. Uh, and also men who have sex with men and women might be bridging the connection between men, men, gay men exclusively in the right. heterosexual populations. We definitely think that there's change in sexual practices and behaviours and every 10 years or so the, uh, there's a national sexual behaviour survey that's conducted and that was last done in 2012 and that showed that among women in particular there was a bit of an increase in the number of lifetime partners that we hope to repeat in a few years time because we need the up-to-date data we don't know if condom use is changing dramatically but i don't think condoms are being used enough i would have thought sorry to interrupt you there yeah. i would have thought that would be a metric that's fairly easy to work out wouldn't you just look at sales of condoms yes you can look at sales of condoms but that doesn't necessarily always equal yeah, what, right. what they're being used and we yeah. don't know which population groups as well that they've yeah. been using but yeah that's a good point and something we should pay closer attention to i'd also think the whole online dating the swipe right swipe <laughs> left i think it's making it easier for people to hook up yeah. now we don't know if that's a factor but it's something that we are looking at and so I think it's multifactorial. Bringing that up, there was an, another area that you're, a project you're involved with, the SHAPE project, yeah. which is, you'll have to help me with what that stands oh, for, Jane. I it. It's something around sexual health I've got and, it. And, can you tell me? Sexual Health and <laughs> Ageing Perspectives and Education Project. Because what you're talking about there is the <coughs> fact that uh, this statistic was quite striking, that there's a 50% increase in the STI rate in the over 60-year-olds population in the last five years. And you're attributing some of that maybe due to the dating websites yeah, and people hooking up more So I just... 
The STI rates in the older adults have increased by 50%, but they're starting from a very low base. Mm. So the bulk of infections in the much younger age groups. But yes, if you, as I've had to do for my job, go online, there's a plethora of online dating sites that mm. spe- specifically target people over the age of 50 and 60. Mm. And so we are seeing greater uptake among the older age groups of these websites. And these are people that, that don't necessarily have gone through the whole um, condom use and safe sex education um, uh, messages that have been tended to be targeted yes. to the younger adults and also to the gay Exactly. Population. And that's yep. what I've found in, in general practice is that um, people in the older age group over 50 aren't really... There, there's not that awareness there and yeah. then they'll come in and they'll have, you know, a symptom and I will now be considering that and they ha- don't consider it at all. And I'll have oh, wow. to... It's the whole um, discussion around, well, do you think it could be um, because the symptoms are consistent and they, they are horrified that it's something that they even have to, you know, address or acknowledge. And that's yeah. a good point that you raised because one of the issues is we've done some qualitative work talking to, to patients about this and they do want to be asked mm. by their doctor mm. about their sexual health and wellbeing mm. but they don't know how to introduce the subjects with doctors and doctors, it's it's not something that tends to be thought of in a standard consultation. So, yeah, there are issues. What's the what's the gold standard for um, uh, for people? Is it every time you change sexual partners that you get tested? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think. In the past, we've just pushed, for young heterosexuals in particular, we've pushed uh, have an annual chlamydia test. But I think the fact that we're seeing more gonorrhea and syphilis in these age groups, and it is associated with changing sexual partners, we need people to be thinking about every time they change their sex mm. partner, go and have an STI test. Yes. <laughs> And if if swipe culture is part of yeah, the it issue, could be that's, that's a week, lot of, every week. Yeah, that's a lot of testing. Yeah, well, that that is the issue, yes. isn't it? And so, Jane, obviously, you've got plenty. Well, some some ideas about why the numbers are increasing. Um, what sort of strat? What are the barriers to us picking up on um, or? or screening more people what are what are the problems with finding all these people who well i shouldn't say all these people being over dramatic but yeah how do we um improve on picking up people who've got these so i think there's a few approaches that we need to take one is we need to make sure that the people are aware that they're at risk mm. so to increase their education and knowledge levels so that they might take the initiative and seek testing themselves the second thing is we need to make sure that get that the healthcare providers are aware of these things mm. so that they ask the right questions when people come in. And one thing, for example, a lot of people do travel a lot overseas. And when they go, if they're young, they'll go overseas. They might hook up with other fellow travellers. They might have sex with them. They might have sex with people living in those countries. So even things like if someone's travelled, when they come back, ask them, do an STI check. Mm. So increasing the awareness of healthcare providers. And the other thing too is I think perhaps we need to really start thinking about, well, what other routes are there or other strategies we can take to make testing widely available? Mm. Um, To do online type of strategies, postal testing, those type of things. So we need to approach it from a number of different angles, I think. Yeah, I think the the point you make about... um, thinking about who might be at risk and uh, and also the barrier that 
a lot of, well, some practitioners don't feel comfortable going there or aren't trained to do so. And I think I was talking to you in the in the green room that, you know, medical students get a short sort of brief um, understanding of how to take a sexual history. But people of my era, we didn't get any training in how to take a sexual history. And so it becomes one of those uncomfortable things for both the patient or mm. well, for some patients and some doctors. And how do we upskill um, practitioners in doing that? in feeling more comfortable? I mean, what what's your advice to how you go about it? Um, I think it's a really tough one. I think we really have to look really strongly at the medical education. Mm. Um, and because, as you mentioned, sexual health and sexual history taking is just a tiny component of the, the standard medical degree. So mm. I think we nearly, really need to address that. And then the, through ongoing GP education and awareness and through the primary health networks who offer um, some training in sexual history taking or STI management. Uh, we need to look at more innovative ways of how we can get GPs to or, and nurses to actually interact with that and do it. But it's a tough one. But the other thing is, is when we talk to young people, I think it's hard, unless a young person has a symptom of an STI, it's not something on their radar. They don't tend to think, I must go see a doctor about this. But they, they actually don't mind if the doctor initiates the conversation. Mm. The doctor's a person in authority. If they tell me, oh, let's do a, a, an STI test, nine times out of ten, they'll ex do one mm. so i think it's people don't necessarily understand you know understand who should be doing the asking it, it just occurs to me it might be useful to have you give us a few definitions so we use this umbrella term sti yep. and uh, chlamydia is your particular interest yep. but but what are, what are we including in stis so, in this conversation that's it so STI, so I'd include gonorrhea, mm -hmm. which is the good old-fashioned, the clap, as we used to know it. <laughs> and uh, syphilis is another important STI. Sounds so medieval every it time we hear it. Syphilis is extraordinarily medieval. <laughs> <laughs> it's the one that, where they used to lose parts of their nose and everything back, you know, several mm. hundred years ago. Well, that ago. should put people off. <laughs> <laughs> so what distinguishes them? Uh, the organism that causes them. Um, syphilis, uh, so chlamydia is 80% of the time it's asymptomatic. So men and women will have no idea they've got it. They might get a bit of discharge, urethral or uh, vaginal discharge, but generally no symptoms at all. Gonorrhea, uh, if a man gets gonorrhea, urethral discharge, he'll know it. Most men get urethral discharge and it's quite foul and it hurts. Women, gonorrhea, most women won't get any symptoms. Uh -huh. mm. Syphilis is often a painless ulcer and it's hidden away and so you don't necessarily know you've got it. So that's a, another thing. And syphilis, particularly in women, is a real issue because last year in Victoria we had two cases of congenital syphilis. Yeah. Mm. And so... Um, Syphilis is meant to be screened for mm. during your pregnancy, but if the woman is at risk of getting syphilis again during pregnancy, you might need to screen, you know, two or three oh, times okay. during the pregnancy. Well, that's interesting. interesting. It's not something that I think people are aware of. Yeah. yeah. So the health department recently uh, released new guidelines or mm. new instruction advisory telling GPs to make sure you screen people, telling people in general to make sure you screen pregnant women for syphilis. Mm. Okay. And it is in the guidelines. 
There's just one other area yeah. I want you to touch on because it was in the in the news as well. Um, HIV in the heterosexual population. There was a report that it's increasing. I mean, it's not a huge increase, yeah. but um, that that was a statement made in the in the press this week. Can you comment on that? Yeah. So. HIV has tended to be quite low in Australia among heterosexuals until recent years. And last year we had 238 cases of HIV were diagnosed among heterosexuals and of those 108 were women. Mm. Now in the women, the number of diagnoses in women has remained fairly stable but it has increased by about 20% in heterosexual men over the last few years. We're not too... Among women, 50% of it seems to be due to risk factors. They're having sex with person at risk or they're having sex with someone from a high prevalence country or they've come from a high prevalence country. In men, it's less cut and dried. But there is some suggestion that it might be being in a certain proportion of it has been acquired through having sex when travelling. But the overall picture for HIV in Australia is pretty good, though. It's very good. And the numbers for the, you know, the first time in many years, we're seeing the numbers of HIV decrease among gay men. Mm. And that's due to the the PrEP, the the pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is now available. Mm. Brilliant, Jane. Look, time's racing by and we we need to wrap up i just wondered if you could just um by way of wrapping up what are you what would be your takeaway messages for for listeners about their own practice of sexual health and and what they what they might do if something is on their mind right now so uh, condoms is the most efficient way to prevent catching hiv in these stis but if it's also a, a person's responsibility as part of their routine clinical care is to just get regular STI tests. So if you know you're having changes of sexual partners, if you know you're not using condoms 100% of the time, go see your doctor and make sure you have at least an annual STI check. Great message. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome back to Radiotherapy on Triple R. It's Panel Beta, it's Training Wheels and Capri. Hope you're enjoying your Sunday morning. We're really happy to be joined by our guest, uh, Rod Harris from um, Motor Neuron Disease Victoria and the Neurological Alliance talking to us about an unintended consequence of an NDIS funding gap. Good morning, Rod. Good morning. Welcome to Triple R. Thank you very much. How about you give us uh, just a little bit of background? Um, your neurological, um, uh, sorry, motor neuron disease, Victoria, is one of four members of this alliance. Can you That's just right. set the, us up? The alliance that? came together because we have shared concerns about this unintended consequence, which has uh, a, a background in history of the way funding was originally provided to disability organisations and then complicated by the uh, uh, Council of Australian Government's decision that if a state was providing disability funding, all of that funding would be transferred to the National Disability Insurance Scheme with the unintended consequence that Victoria was providing services to people of all ages and all of a sudden the NDIS is only up to 65. So we've got a group of people who are not eligible or won't ever be eligible for the NDIS Mm. going to miss out and all of those people over 65 who are reliant on aged care which is really about frailty and dementia rather than 
unintended need caused by their diagnosis and disability. Mm. Let's come to some of the specifics on that, but I'm I'm really curious to know about this alliance. So what do all of the members of the alliance have in common? Well, we all have neurological disease as a a basis. Um, They're all progressive. Uh, So motor neuron disease is obviously rapidly progressive through to Parkinson's, which is slowly progressive. Um, And we have a concern that we don't want people with progressive neurological disease to uh, be disadvantaged. Mm. And who are the four members? The four members are motor neuron disease, multiple sclerosis, uh, epilepsy and Parkinson's. Gotcha, gotcha. Capri, you look like you're about to jump. <laughs> no, I've, I've lost my train of thought. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, how about you set up um, uh, a few stats for us? Give us a, a, what, what's the population that we're looking at here? Yeah, we're looking at about 80,000 people oh. across Victoria who uh, will miss out on services, largely information, helping people to manage their own disease to live better for longer with their disease, but also for health professionals who will lose access to support from organisations that specialise and people with the disease who need one-to-one, I suppose, support to help them understand the information that's available about their disease in their personal context. Right, right, right. Um, And these 80,000, you touched on the old, an older age group but we're I'm, I'm assuming we're dealing with it right across the board right yes certainly we you know uh, epilepsy for example uh, affects people from a very young age mm-hmm. and the dilemma is that many of their group won't develop disability at a level that the ndis will step in mm. similarly parkinson's has a, a a younger group but also an older group uh, and motor neuron disease covers the broad range, and MS has a very long age mm. uh, group from you know to early twenties onset through to uh, uh, over seventies. So, what is that level? How do they determine at what level they'll get funding? Well, under the NDIS, you have to have a reasonable and necessary need uh, that's been created by your disability. So uh, with epilepsy in particular, for Mm. example, uh, if you just need uh, support in dealing with your medication, that's a health issue. NDIS won't support that. Mm. Uh, NDIS won't support training of health professionals in uh, their conditions and their impact on people. So it's really... The NDIS is focused on disability and the needs it creates and they have to be reasonable and necessary and fundable through the the scheme. Mm -hmm. What about for something like epilepsy, the inability to drive? Is that considered something that's supported under the NDIS? Uh, It may be. It depends what else is impacted uh, and what other supports they need. Um, You know, the state government provides its concessional taxi service already. Okay. Uh, And that's outside the NDIS at this point in time. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, so the current state of play with the service, you've mentioned the tax service just there, 
Well, at, the, at the moment, what are the funded services available? Well, the funded services uh, are funded through the state government and uh, they're essentially bundled under a heading of information. Uh, historically, when government wanted to give money to disability organisations, it all went under disability and if it couldn't be slotted under a defined program, it went under information. Right. Information funding is all being transferred to the NDIS in its entirety. Mm. And Victoria was the only state that was delivering services to people of all ages. So we're being disadvantaged because part of that money should be remaining in Victoria for those people that won't be serviced by the NDIS. Mm. Gotcha. You, it sounds really diplomatic of you guys to be calling <laughs> yes. it unintended consequences. Mm. Are you just being diplomatic or was it indeed just an oversight in the design of the policy? No, I genuinely believe it was an oversight. Mm. Um, as I just said, Victoria being the only state in Australia that has not had an age 65 barrier in its legislation, right. the Disability Act, um, all the other states said, boy, oh, yeah, all our disability funding can transfer. Mm. Uh, and Victoria got carried along with the rush. Mm. But not thinking about those that wouldn't qualify for the NDIS but still have a disability, and particularly for my concern, the over 65s. Yeah, right. Sorry. So what, can, what, what are you wanting to see happen? Well, we're, we're, we're wanting the state government to uh, do two things. Uh, first, we want con continuation of that funding uh, from them until, secondly, they resolve the issues with the Commonwealth over the NDIS and their ILC funding round. ILC is about information, um, but at the way that's been introduced so far, it's largely been about apps, websites, mechanisms mm. to transfer information. Whereas for with uh, neurological disease, one of the key elements is to have information and advice individualised and personalised. Because yes. every person's experience with the disease is their own. Completely different, And yeah. you use information better if it's in the context that you're living. Mm. And when does the funding stop? Stops on the 30th of June next year. Mm -mm. Right. Okay. Just take a pause there, guys. We'll come back for the last bit of the show, but we've just got a couple of uh, sponsor announcements and we're back uh, talking with Rod Harris. You're on Radiotherapy with Capri, Training Wheels and Panel Beta. Back in a moment. This Cup Eve, James Rain continues the tradition by returning to the Corner Hotel. James and band will deliver the hits from his extensive solo career and the songs of Australian crawl. James Rain and Band at the Corner Hotel, Cup Eve, Monday, November the 5th, with special guests Lisa Miller and Shane O'Mara. Tickets selling fast. James Rain and Crawford Creative Services. Triple R sponsors. The only son of a wealthy widow dies while on vacation with his cousin. What happened that day was so horrifying, it left his cousin traumatised and his mother searching for answers about her son's destruction. Red Stitch Actors Theatre and multi-award winning director Stephen Nicolazzo bring you a rare opportunity to see Suddenly Last Summer by Tennessee Williams. Limited season from October the 5th to November the 4th. Bookings at redstitch.net. Triple R Sponsors. 
October is Mental Health Month, and to coincide, Triple R's radiotherapy program will broadcast live from the performance space on Sunday, October 14, from 10 a.m. Hosts Dr. Doolittle, Mel Practice, Dr. Autonomy, and Panel Beater will be joined by two very special guests award winning journalist and best selling author Jill Stark. Plus, former comedian, now author and MC Nellie Thomas, whose passion is health and well-being. Tune in Sunday, October 14 at 10 a.m. for Radiotherapy Live at Triple R. Subscribers, stay tuned or check out the Triple R website for your chance to be a part of the audience. Yeah, really looking forward to, to next Sunday. It should be a blast. Who's going to get a word in edgeways? That's well, what I'm interested in. Right. I, just, I just can see, yes. <laughs> It'll be but... a fight to the death. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> Um, And uh, just on that, so we did have the prize giveaway and uh, Deborah is the lucky Triple R subscriber who rang in and got herself a a double pass to the Radiotherapy live show next Sunday here in the performance space. Bound to be some more opportunities to uh, get your hands on a couple of passes. Listen out for those in upcoming shows. Where um, it's panel beater uh, Capri and Training Wheels talking with uh, Rod Harris of Motor Neuron Disease Victoria and the Neurological Alliance. Uh, Rod, um, we've got um, our conversation underway and we're, we're time's rapidly um, coming to a close for us. Maybe you can give us a sense of where we're at with the discussions and, and um, where, the, where the lobbying is, uh, where, where it's at at the moment. Look, we've, uh, I think, got good... Uh, hearing of our issue from the state government. They understand where we're at. They are concerned about the impact of, of the withdrawal of this funding on health services in particular. And uh, they recognise the important role that the neurological organisations play in supporting people with their diseases and the health service that's supporting them. They're bound, though, by the decisions of government. And uh, so we're still in that negotiation phase. Um, and we hope that uh, there may be some continuation of funding whilst they sort out the bigger picture issue, which is state government versus the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Have you got a sense where it fits in in priority terms at the moment? It sounds like you're getting a good hearing. Yeah, look, I think uh, given given an election coming shortly, <laughs> uh, one doesn't want to play <laughs> electoral groups games. love an election time. Yeah. But look, our focus is on people with these diagnoses. It's not about the organisations. And uh, if we can... Mm. Uh, achieve better outcomes, helping people live better for longer, that's going to involve the state making decisions Mm. and having success with their uh, larger negotiations with the NDIS. Brilliant, brilliant. In the last little bit of time we've got left, why don't you tell us a little about your own organisation? Yeah, well, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, Motor neuron disease is uh, one of those rotten illnesses that we'd love to see wiped off the earth. Uh, Average life expectancy about 27 months, no known cause, only one treatment that may extend life by about three months. Uh, And certainly the interventions that uh, make a difference to people's lives are largely around uh, peg feeding straight into the stomach, assisted ventilation and multidisciplinary teams. In other words, better care. Uh, Our organisation has been in existence for about 37 years. We still raise nearly 80% of our own money from the public and we deliver three key services. Uh, We have M&D advisors who uh, provide a navigation service for clients uh, and their families of the service system. 
Uh, we run a no-cost-to-the-client equipment loan service. Mm. We can lend everything from a urinal through to a $20,000 electric wheelchair. Mm, and we provide information. And our information line really is fundamental to helping people keep control of their lives. What is that line? Uh, that line is uh, if uh, you're in rural Victoria, 1800 80 or 9830 or our website, www.mnd.asn.au. You said you've been in existence for, did you say, 37 years? Yeah. Um, could you nominate off the top of your head what, what's changed in 37 years? What did dealing with this back in the 1970s look like compared to, to now? Mm. Look, it, it, what's happened is that, uh, one, we've got more people being accurately diagnosed and requiring support services. Uh, we've got more people aware of motor neurone disease and the work of Neil Danaher yes. and, and uh, his uh, organisation has certainly raised recognition and awareness. And I think today... We're better at focusing on the individual rather than having to fight the bigger picture awareness stuff right. so that we're actually making a difference. Mm, great. We yeah. started off on a bit of a down, but that sounded like a nice yes. positive. Yeah, I'll take that. Three triple R.